Shalom. Welcome to another episode of Inspiration from Zion. I'm Jonathan Feldstein, and I have the privilege of being your host, coming to you from the Judean mountains here in Israel. I like to refer to it as the original Bible Belt. Inspiration from Zion is a program of the Genesis 1-2-3 Foundation, whose mission is to build bridges between Jews and Christians and Christians with Israel in ways that are new, unique, and meaningful. I pray that you will find this, all of those. Through this program, we're excited to connect you to people and stories in and relating to Israel to give you a window to look through, experiencing aspects of life here that you might not otherwise know about. We want this to be interactive, so please be in touch with us at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com and send along any questions, any comments about any topic, any time. Or you can reach us at genesis123.co or follow and like Inspiration from Zion at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Stay tuned until the end where we're going to share some exciting opportunities, and please feel free to share this with others who will also find it of interest. Uh, if you've been following Inspiration from Zion for the last three and a half years, you'll know that Major Elliot Chodoff, Major in the Reserves, Elliot Chodoff, is a frequent guest, a, f- a fun guest, and really engaging and uh, has a great ability to communicate the, le- the the various expertise that he has both personally uh, through his experience and, and through various academic studying. Elliot is a political and military analyst specializing in the Middle East and the global war on terror. And as you might imagine, the past four months, he's been quite busy. He just recently was discharged uh, from reserves, uh, although I heard him say something about never knowing when he may be going back. We'll talk about that. He's a decorated officer, a respected speaker, a frequently published commentator, most recently having a whole lot of uh, TV uh, and other media interviews, people like myself seeking uh, his input. And personally, one of the reasons that I like having Elliot on the program, other than his uh, breadth of knowledge and ability to communicate, is that he's always as warm and outgoing and charming as he is thoughtful and serious. And I think I say that every time, and I mean it every time. Um, Elliot, welcome back to Inspiration from Zion. We have a lot to talk about today. Yes, there's a lot going on. And actually, come to think of it, I was going to make a joke about you, you haven't been posting very much about what you're making for dinner and how what wines you're pairing it right. with. I guess you've been busy with other things. Busy with other things. And um, you know, we're, we're still living our lives. But I think that um, publicizing it at this point is oh. over publicizing it, perhaps, is um not not in, in not appropriate to the to the circumstances. I I I I share, we've been spoken about that, but I share that very much. I've I've avoided all kinds of frivolous posts, even something as beautiful as a sunrise. Um, right. Not... Occasionally, occasionally, um, I'll do something like that because I think you know that that occasional shot of you know it it's still beautiful out there is is a good thing. Yeah. Um, but. But not a sort of a constant stream of look at what a good time we're having when uh, when we're not. I mean, we're it's it's a dilemma. It really is because on the one hand, uh, I think that one of the ways that we do defeat Hamas and 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 its ilk is not to let them turn our lives into a perpetual funeral. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I say that advisedly. We we had a, a neighbor of ours was was killed uh, a, a couple of weeks ago in Gaza, um, and and you know the tragedies are real, 
but if we turn all of our lives into tragedy, then they then they win, you know, doubly. Correct, correct, correct. It's a it's a different dimension of terror. Uh, uh, so let me ask you, actually, on that, you you mentioned your neighbor. Um, you live in the north. Uh, yeah. it, it's been relatively busy in the north with drones and rockets from from Hezbollah. How are you? How's your family doing? You were away for a period. Your wife and you have a four year old son. Four year old, yes. Four year old. Um, well, it ha it hasn't reached us. We we hear some of it occasionally in the background, which is nerve wracking enough. Um, but the we're we're in the in the north, but south of the line that's being uh, hit constantly by by Hezbollah. We do hear the planes going over constantly, so it's there's a constant reminder that it's on. But it's not it's not hitting home in in the sense of disrupting daily life with alerts and alarms and that sort of thing. For the most part, Hezbollah is hitting areas that have been evacuated. Okay. Not because they can't hit Not other they areas. Can't, but right, they're they're um, they're trying. When they escalate, they're escalating quantitatively rather than qualitatively, for the most part. In other words, they'll fire more rockets and more anti-tank missiles uh, one day than they did a previous day, and sometimes sharply, yeah, larger numbers. But they're not going beyond the line essentially of the uh, evacuated zone. So they're hitting places that are largely not populated. I say largely because there are people living there and we've, and we've had occasional casualties um, or they're hitting military bases. But when they do fire further south, um, as they did uh, in the last few days, a couple of times in, in the Haifa direction, they've sent one drone, uh, which is much more of a disruption than a real attempt to do damage. Yeah. So let me ask you, I just noticed, you know, we, we record this, the, the, the podcast always comes out on Thursday, we're recording and it's it's in, it's actually now that I'm looking at the date, I'm, I'm glad specifically recording today, Sunday, February 11th, today is the 45th anniversary of the Islamic Revolution in Iran, without which we might not be having all of the problems that we are having today. Um, right. We're at day 128, nine. Something of this like that. I, I, I'm not following on, on that level, but yes, we're well, we are four four plus months in. Correct. And by the time and, and by the time this episode's released later in the week, it'll be a, a solid four plus months. It's not just a couple of days over. Um, right. You when you were when you were called up, uh, you were serving down near the Gaza border, maybe in. Right. I don't know. You'll, you'll tell us what's going on down there. Uh, there I have a, a bunch of specific questions. But I don't know if it's a fair measure, but I still obsessively wake up in the morning and turn on the news uh, just before six o'clock to hear and see pictures of who the latest casualties are. And my sense is there have been many fewer, that we've lost fewer soldiers. And that right. to me is a good thing, of course. Is mm -hmm. it indicative of more success that we've that we're squeezing them out? What what's the status now? Three solid months in since the ground incursion. Okay, so first of all, I think I think it's important to state that from a military point of view, and I'm emphasizing military because from a human point of view, every casualty is is a, is a tragedy. Of course, for, for family, friends, and so on. And, and that's not just words. I mean that seriously. 
But if I look at it from a purely military perspective, we've done enormously well with very, very few casualties given the scale of the operation. Uh, much fewer than were anticipated, much fewer than were uh, the, the horror projections of the naysayers, um, and frankly, fewer than I expected. And I'm 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 not a naysayer, but I'm I'm reasonably critical, and I have to say that I'm uh, pleasantly surprised, not shocked, but pleasantly pleasantly surprised by how well the IDF is handling what is a very complex large-scale urban warfare operation. Yeah. So start with that. Uh, a good number of the casualties, and I can't go into exact numbers because it, it, it's not all that clear, but they're talking about 20% or so are the result of, um, I hate the term friendly fire. Know, in, Hebrew, in, in Hebrew, we call it, you know, the two, two sides shooting, shooting at ourselves, something like that. Um, but fire from our own troops and and accidents and right and, okay and and those two are um, how can I say this urban urban warfare is conducive to friendly fire uh, casualties and to accidents because it's high pressure because it's 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 close in because the nature of movement in particular in an urban environment makes it very, very difficult to, to mark who's where. Uh, and I can just, to give you a sense of that as an example, out in the open, if two, two units, let's say two platoons or two companies, whatever, are moving in, together in, in a line, so you know that you, the last guy on your right is just his next to the last guy on the left of the other guys. And and you can kind of get a sense of who's where and that sort of thing. Uh, and, you can, and you can use geographical features, topographical features, whether it's a tree or a hill or whatever, and say, okay, that's, you know, that's the line between us. When you're moving in, in, a, in an urban environment, you're moving along streets. And between the streets are buildings. And it's very, very difficult to mark the line between the units on the streets yeah. that are moving in parallel. Uh, and as I said, just it's one example of many of how an urban environment is much more complicated. Now, I, I just, yeah, I want to interject something from my son's experience and what we know from from just regular reports without even having any military background. My son was telling me he just got discharged two weeks ago, um, but he was telling me when they go into homes, they're they're going through everything looking for evidence looking for terror looking for weapons right. and right. and that is also that's not tradition and, and what's the other oh and looking for bodies at the beginning also specifically looking for bodies of terrorists and 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 that's not traditionally something that one does i think in combat you go on and you kill the terror the, the enemy right right although going going through in urban warfare going through buildings is, is part of the the okay out process but that's usually the second stage. The, the initial stage of the assault uh, means that if here again, if if they're if, if the enemy, in this case terrorists, are in buildings to your right, they are also to the left of the unit to your right. Correct. And Correct. you can end up shooting at each other. Correct. Correct. Uh, especially you know moving behind the buildings into alleyways yep. and and, yep. and 
you 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 can you get the picture. So we're at a stage today where a number of things have happened. And I think they all have to be taken into account. Let's start with the fact that the IDF, the forces on the ground, are significantly more combat experienced today than they were three months ago. Right. And you can't take that that away from them. There's a learning curve. Correct. There's an organizational learning curve. Good. There's a personal learning curve. Good. Uh, these guys are simply combat veterans, and they weren't three months ago. Okay, whether the training was good, very good, excellent, it was doesn't matter. Right. Uh, they're they're much more mature fighters than they were. Correct. So that's number one. Number two, Hamas is degraded. Good. And 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 it's it's not a, a perfect symmetry, but the Hamas force that that the IDF faced at the beginning doesn't exist anymore. The Gaza Brigade and its or brigades and its their battalions are simply no longer exist. The Khanunis battalions are down to their last one and is getting beaten up. Uh, I mean, we have five brigades engaging the remnants of the Khanunis battalion. Now, under normal circumstances, just for the, for those who are not familiar with military organization, a brigade is between three and four battalions. So we've got just in simple organizational terms, something like a 20, 20 to one advantage over this battalion in Khan Yunus. That's before you get into the relative advantage, the, the multipliers of quality, of of support, of air support, of artillery support, and that sort of thing is overwhelmed. Right. And three months in, the home field advantage is less. Right. Right. Uh, and of course, there are, the, there are the four battalions left in Rafiyah. I, I imagine we'll talk about that a little bit later. Yeah. So that's another element the the maneuver at this point the maneuver phase of the operation has been reduced significantly because we're no longer operating in that sort of freewheeling taking over and we're now in a much more methodical uh clearing out we just the other day found this the tunnel under the unra headquarters in, yeah. in gaza and ramal uh, but that was the result of of intelligence work that was the result of interrogating prisoners. And, Correct. and this is another another thing we should add. We are we know much more about them now than we did three Excellent. months ago. Excellent. Okay. Because prisoners are, I call them the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, <laughs> you know. And and they are, and, and they talk. And when you capture a lot of them, you can cross-reference. Yes. It's a very, very effective interrogation yes. uh method that you gain you gain knowledge. The more you learn, the more you you gain, and 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 so on. In other words, there's there's a, a reinforcing, accelerating effect to that. So all of that together equals fewer casualties on the kind of day to day basis. And we should mention that the last two officers who were killed, including my the, my neighbor here from from our village, uh, were killed at the entrance area to that tunnel under UNRWA by snipers. Uh, In other words, it, it was a long distance shot, which is virtually impossible to prevent. Right. Uh, it wasn't indirect face-to-face -face combat right. with right. terrorists. Right. So those kind of casualties we're going to see. We're going to see them periodically. Um, there's just There's no getting around that. 
But those are the kind of numbers that we're going to see. In other words, one here, one there, uh, a sniper will fire and 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 succeed. But we're not seeing it in 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 battle, so to Correct. speak. Correct. We haven't woken. We haven't waken up in. A, I don't have a graph, but in a, but in a bit to the news of three, four, five. Forget the forget the horrible day of twenty one, but right. which was an accident. But but where where three, four, five. Soldiers are killed in, in fierce battle in the center of Gaza, and that's all we know. Right. So let's come back to that day of, of the 21. Even yeah. there, um, 19 were killed in, in those two buildings that, that yeah. blew up. 14 of them should not have been in those buildings. Right. Brothers, that, was not, that wasn't an accident. That was an operational error that was a result of poor junior command, poor following procedure. Uh. Uh, you know, I, I don't. I don't want to criticize, condemn soldiers who were killed, but you know, s battle includes casualties. But there are some casualties that are simply avoidable, and yeah. and, and fourteen of those were. Yeah. Uh, if we add to the fact that, and this is from them, they the the survivors of that operation themselves. Well, we didn't expect to come under fire because we were so close to the border with the Negev. We didn't think there would still be terrorists operating there. Well, that's also sloppiness. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, you know, again, I, I hate to say it so critically, but I think that after an event like that, uh, sloppiness tends to to drop sharply. Mm. And I mean, we all get tired. We all get lazy. Patton famously said, "Fatigue makes cowards of us all." Mm. Uh, in other words, there there are factors here that are real, uh, but Good procedure, good command, proper proper use uh, reduces those dangers as well. So I so I want to take a break, but before I do, maybe set it up. It's a good. It would be a good cliffhanger. You have men like my son, my son-in-law, others. Lots of lot of uh, reservists being discharged now, yes. um, and and I don't know to what degree they're being replaced, or if we're still with the same military force or they're fewer but they're and they're and they're on call but if my question is you're saying yes people make mistakes and you get sloppy but but you also talked earlier about the learning curve tightening after the after a, a short period of time now if you have new do we have a situation where new soldiers soldiers are going in new who don't have that combat experience even with the weakening of Hamas and and the limitation of threats do we do we see a pendulum going in the, the potential pendulum the other direction where because they haven't had that combat experience there's a potential greater risk for casualties or are these people who have already been in and they're just thinning them out first of all we're we're certainly reducing the amount of force in gaza we don't we we initially had five divisions operating in there it's way more than is necessary at the moment, okay, uh, we you could possibly argue that it was it was too much even at the time, but I say that hesitantly. Better to have one division too many than one division too few, right? Uh, so so that's not criticism. That's sort of retrospective analysis with a perhaps a big perhaps in front of it. But certainly with the degradation of Hamas, we don't need that much force in there. So what we're going to be seeing, I think, is a reduction of force and more rotation back in of guys who've been pulled out, particularly of the, of the regular army, not the reservists. Right. Um, 
but reservists too will be called up on a, you know on whatever basis for whatever needs there are. We've we've already been told that that you know the reserve uh, requirement numbers are going to go up significantly yes. over the next well starting this year. Um, so no, we're we're not going to see fresh inexperienced troops being sent in. Uh, not in, not into the teeth of the fighting. What I would expect over time, if we're still there, is to see new troops, in other words, inexperienced troops, being rotated in, but re being rotated into quieter areas, doing uh, not not intensive kind of combat, uh, but more to give them the experience of being in the field, building up the confidence. Uh, exercises are exercises that they're very important. But there's nothing like actual being out yeah. there on the battlefield to to give you the experience that you need. Got it. Okay. Uh, I I like how you set up where I wanted to go. But first, we're gonna and, and talking about if we're still there. But I want to take a quick break and come right back. Friends, Israel's at war, and the war may get worse before it gets better, much worse. It's going to be a long war because the enemy is the epitome of evil. It's not just a matter of overcoming troops on a battlefield, but overcoming a theology, an ideology, an evil one. While the Genesis 123 Foundation has been overwhelmed with the support of so many donations to the Israel Emergency Campaign, there's so much more that needs to be done. We've invested your donations that we've received so far strategically to make the biggest impact possible, whether helping with soldiers and their equipment and personal needs to providing civilian security for outlying border communities, to relocating and settling several families from near the Gaza war zone, launching the global petition drive to support Israel in the face of pressure for a ceasefire and long-term needs for at-risk children, traumatized now more than ever before. Please take a moment to pause this conversation right now and go to love.genesis123 co and donate generously we value your trust and we will keep all donors informed about how and where your donations are being used to contribute to make the biggest impact possible and when you use that link love.genesis123.co you can also send your prayers and words of encouragement to israelis of all backgrounds just sending your love something that we need so desperately. Thank you, and God bless you and your loved ones. I, I, I want to move the conversation, Elliot, but you obviously feel free to bring me back or go in any direction okay. no, you want to go. Okay, this the, this week, I was a little surprised. I'm not surprised by the by the the conversation and the probably the international pressure that's come that that's behind it. But it was a little surprising for me to see the prime minister attributing quotes attributing to the prime minister that we have a month to wrap things up before Ramadan um, in, in Rafiak in the south, in the, in the, in the one remaining uh, big urban area in Gaza that has not yet been taken on. Um, it, on any level, whether as you set this up for me in terms of if we're still there or tipping your hand to the uh, enemies that, well, maybe in a month we're going to wrap things up and, and reduce reduce violence, and that will be their clue to hang on, or anything else. What do you think about that? Is, is there substance to it, and what do you think about it? 
I don't think there's substance to, substance to it. First of all, I think that any sort of timetable that sets a deadline for military operation uh, artificially is dangerous, either because you run the risk of stopping the operation before it's done, or you run the risk of setting a timetable and, the, and then finding yourself not keeping your timetable because it was unrealistic in the first place. Now, to clarify that point, some timetables are immutable. I'll give you an example. Uh, we say the Havdil, not you know, not to make any comparisons whatsoever, but when when Germany invaded Russia, its timetable was based on winter coming. Correct. That's immutable. That's you know, you can like it, you could not like it, but they invaded in June, and on December fifth, when the temperatures dropped to thirty and forty below zero centigrade, uh, that timetable was rammed down their throats whether they liked it or not. Uh, an artificial timetable is to say we're going to do this in a month, or we're going to do it by by this particular date. And there I I can cite the numerous cases in history of leaders and generals saying we're going to bring the boys home by Christmas. Um, <laughs> and I mean they always do, just not that Christmas. <laughs> right. You know, but, three years but, later, four years later. It, it, Netanyahu is not saying we we we're gonna, we need to wrap it up in a month because he feels that way or, or or for anything. In fact, politically, it's probably better for him that this go on for a little bit. Right. Um, but but Ramadan is Ramadan. Is there is there a risk that we're it. going to have a worse war? Are we going to have worse circumstances? Are people going to hate us even more around the world and vote to condemn us even well, more? First of all, it's hard for them to hate us more than they already Okay, hate. that's... <laughs> I, I always say it's kind of liberating to be in this situation. If no matter what you do, you're going to be condemned. Okay. Uh, then do so, what you need to do. Um, I don't see it. Ramadan historically has been problematic for us in quiet times because it was a, a potential triggering time for the radical Islamists. Yeah. Uh, who would use it in part because people are, here again, the Havdil, not to compare anything, but in the holiday season, people are more aware. They tend to go to a house of worship more so than they would regularly. Uh, they're more open to influence by the religious leadership. And some of the Muslim religious leadership are radical Islamists. And I, I want to emphasize some. This is not every... Muslim who goes to a mosque during Ramadan is bombarded with with radicalism, but the radicals are the radicals, and they're going to have a larger audience during Ramadan. That is true in regular times. Today, they're doing it anyway. In other words, the the access doesn't suddenly become more so in Ramadan. Now, we might we see a bit of an uptick because along with a religious period, you get a, a, a little more fervor, a little more sense of, of religious commitment by some of the population. And here again, I'm, I'm talking across the boards, not specifically Ramadan. Okay. Uh, yes. But first of all, will countries go to war with us because it's Ramadan? No. Go to war against us, you mean? So, right. Go, okay. War against us, right? Okay. Will they declare war on us or or go launch a war against us because of Ramadan? Absolutely not. The Yom Kippur War started 
during Ramadan. But that oh. wasn't the concern. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't know that then. Okay. Yes. Okay. Um, they didn't do it because it was Ramadan. They did it because it suited them. They did it because it was Yom Kippur more than Correct. anything else. Okay. And Ramadan was incidental. Now, once it started, they referred to it as the Ramadan War. But that wasn't its cause. That was an add-on. Got it. And, and it didn't and it didn't prevent them. So it's not like exactly. they're all sitting at home, sleeping. That's right. Well, they're fasting. Right. It surely doesn't prevent them. Look, just just like once again, Lahavdil, the fact that this attack happened on Shabbat and Simchat Torah right. didn't prevent Orthodox observant Jews to get in their vehicles, grab their guns, and go to war. Correct. Uh, so I, I think there's there's a, a, a tendency, particular among um, particularly among secular Westerners, and I mean this Jewish and Christian secular Westerners, or Jewish and non-Jewish is a better way to put it. Perhaps, okay. Okay. Um, to attribute an almost mystical power to the religious period in terms of disrupting everything, uh, you know, changing the way the world works, it doesn't. Could it be an excuse? Yes. Okay. Okay. So Ramadan's coming, and that may or may not have any impact in the conduct conducting of the war. I, I, I personally would put very little impact in my planning if I were if I were asked to do military planning on, on that basis. Yeah. Now, if we could end it before, that's great. But I wouldn't go out of my way, and certainly not to, to risk additional casualties or, or losses, uh, in order to get it done in a month if it would normally take two months. Got it. And and we can plan. Well, I mean, you 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 you're the military expert. We can plan and say we'll be done in a month, regardless of whether it's Ramadan or not. But things happen, right? Your your right. plan, your 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 military campaign doesn't always go according to your best plan. No, it never goes according to your plan. Okay, okay. Uh, it, it, in in the IDF, we have a saying in Hebrew, kol basis l'shinui, every plan is just a basis for change. <laughs> um, and there are many variations of a quote originally attributed to a chief of the German general staff in the 19th century, von Moltke, that no plan survives the first contact with the enemy. Ah, okay. Uh, and I can give you more, but I think you get the picture. The planning, yeah. planning is good. Actually, I will give you one more quote because I think it's it's an important one. It's germane. Eisenhower, after D-Day, and D-Day, of course, was the most extensively planned operation in the history of warfare, mm. uh, said that once the troops hit the beaches, the plans were useless, but the planning had been critical. Oh, very nice. I happen to say I love, in all of our conversations, I love how you pull with such ease. It's just seamless. You're like you're ready for this conversation, and you've got the quote line. I I love that about you, Elliot. Very nice. Um, okay, Ramadan check. We have another complication. We still have 136 hostages, many of whom are not alive. Um, right. I'm just going to say it. I don't think the number is 136. Well, there are, there are there are either living beings or there or their remains. Yes. Uh, and we don't know exactly what the number is. There's speculation, obviously. If Israel's counted that there's 25 or 30 who who were saying are already dead, that means people that we can legitimately count. But that doesn't mean that of, of the other hundred or, or or so that that many of them are not, and we don't know. 
and we don't know. Um, Actually, and that's one of the obscene the, things. The highest public estimate is 51 are no longer alive. Okay, I didn't know that. A operative words being public estimate because many public estimates in terms of the infrastructure of Hamas and other sorts of things have been also, Yes, we've learned a lot. But I, I think if just, just to, to digress on this for a moment, all official estimates of this type are going to be low by definition the only question is how low. Okay. Okay. In other words, if if the public statement that was made to, to the Wall Street Journal of 51 um, is official, in other words, if it, if it comes from an official source, what that means is that we know for a fact about those 51. Right. What we don't know is what's happened to the rest of them to right. assume that all of the rest are alive. They could be, but it's... It's a kind of stretch assumption. So how do we, you and I spoke very early on in the war with, um, oh dear, uh, Rabbi Sh uh, Shlomo Brody. It was a great conversation then right. about, and it was a very, it was like eras ago, uh, about how to conduct a, uh, what was, I forget what we called it, a, an ethical, ethical war against an unethical enemy. Yes. The F enemy is no less ethical. Our ethics have been, pretty solid despite the south african uh allegations but but we're still the, the and that was an interesting conversation in terms of the military versus humanitarian priority uh, humanitarian right. being to to get hostages free um right. many were uh during that pause that we had not enough but what what how does that play out what are your thoughts as we sit with 136, 100, uh, as, as many as 51 of whom are believe, could believe, could be believed to be already dead. How do we proceed in all of this? I think that we we need first of all, and I think the government has done this, to draw absolute red lines and say these we are not crossing. We're not ending this war to save the hostages. We're not withdrawing from Gaza to save the hostages. We're not relieving, releasing 6,000 terrorists to save the hostages. Now, what? having said that, what do you do and how do you deal becomes a very, very tricky dilemma. It's a moral dilemma uh, that, in, that, that whose parameters change on a daily basis because the, the situation today is different from the situation a month ago. Correct. And do you give Hamas the breathing space? And, and let's not forget, and I, and I think this is very often lost in the discussion, if we give Hamas, let's say for argument's sake, two months or three months to rebuild, to rearm, we've already told the Egyptians there, are, as far as we know, there are 12 operating tunnels under what's known as the Philadelphia Corridor, the, the Egyptian border in Rafiah. Those those car, those tunnels are being used to bring equipment in. The we know that Hamas is taking the lion's share of the humanitarian aid, food as well as fuel. Okay, now add all of that up, and that means that two months from now we have a significantly stronger Hamas than we do today. Yes. How many Israeli soldiers now die yes. as a result of that that would not have? And here again, I'm, I'm going to say. Something to repeat something that I said earlier. In war, in combat, soldiers get killed. 
Yes. But that but that doesn't necessarily mean that everyone who got who gets killed necessarily had to because of the military circumstances. Correct. And that that gap between necessity and giving them the ability to kill more is also a moral dilemma. Do I lose 150 additional soldiers in order to save 70 hostages? Now that's a horrific calculus to have to get into. Correct. Correct. But and and it's one that the army I think has to give an answer to or at least its own estimate. Uh and it's an estimate because you you never know. And and war is is that quirky thing where one one mess up on top of one strengthening of their on their part and suddenly you could be looking at dozens of casualties yeah. on on the other hand or nothing uh, but that that's part of the dilemma there there's no simple arithmetic simple geometry uh that you could say okay x plus y equals z and right. let's work it out yeah, you mentioned in terms of the, you're right, in terms of um, any any calculation can cause more soldiers to be killed, and the, and they're not volunteering to be killed, they're volunteering, or they're not volunteering, they're they're called up, right. but to, they're, they're serving to protect the country. I've been overwhelmed recently seeing, personally, when I go out and bring winter jackets to soldiers, now today, by the way, we delivered our 1000th jacket. Wow. Uh, which is, and I can't say what unit publicly for reasons, but you'll actually appreciate it. Um, but everyone I'm speaking to in person and abundantly on TV, we're seeing soldiers saying, we need to finish the job. And the job is two-pronged, the destruction of Hamas and releasing of the hostages. And that, and they're, they're in, they're, they're, they're fully sure. on board. There isn't hesitation. Right. So you know what? Let me, let me add a, an, another spin to it. Through those tunnels, they can also bring rockets. Yes. Which will be fired into Israeli civilian populated areas. Correct. How many civilian casualties in Rishon LeZion, Kiryat Gat, do you trade for how many of the hostages? And I, I right, and I raise that only. I agree with you. Let's let's leave soldiers out of the equation for a moment. Let's compare apples to apples and not apples to oranges. Well, okay. How many innocent Israeli civilians do you endanger in order to make some sort of a deal to to get out the hostages? Um, and I'm I'm saying this not to criticize the possibility of a deal, but simply to point out the complexity of the moral elements of making such a deal. Yeah. Yeah. And and I thought I've been doing a lot of writing. One of the ones that I thought and I, it would be writing on his behalf because I don't believe he will say it is the prime minister writing a letter of apology, basically saying that all the soldiers who have been killed in the in the in the military operation and all the twelve hundred who were killed on October 7th and all of the hostages. If Israel had not had a policy of mowing the lawn but rather destruction and if israel had not had a policy of allowing qatar to bring in hundreds of millions of dollars in cash to fund this and if israel had had a policy of saying egypt we know that stuff is coming in under from your border and people are being paid off if we had had a determined policy at some point using what ariel sharon said after the withdrawal from gaza in 2005 
that we would destroy them and we haven't. Correct. And that's on that's on the state of Israel as well. All of these of ca casualties. Look, you you can go back further. They asked Yitzhak Rabin during the Oslo period, okay. what if they turn the guns that we're giving them on us? Yeah. And he, I I remember the interview. He said very clearly, looking at the camera, he said, that would <laughs> be the end, end of them. them. Yeah. Okay, that was 30 years ago. Um, I'll add another piece to it. The hostage deals, most recently the Shalit deal, but not only that one, because it, it's been a, a a rolling kind of operation. It's a snowball thing. Sorry? A snowball effect. It, it continues well, to grow. It's an accelerating effect. It's a snowball effect. Uh, we traded over a thousand terrorists for Gilad Shalit, right, including mm -hmm. Sinwar and some of his friends. Correct. Gilad Shalit being the soldier, the soldier who was kidnapped was in. He was captured. He was not kidnapped. Captured. Thank you. Fine. Sorry, I'm using current lingo. Captured. Um, in 2006, and by the way, in negotiations that took over five years. Correct. Uh, we agreed to release over a thousand terrorists for him to get him back. We released hundreds of terrorists to get back bodies in two prior deals. Uh, in, yeah. in one in one early deal, we released Sheikh Ahmed Yassin, the, the founder of Hamas. Uh, now, on the one hand, you could say, okay, so what? And and here, let's be clear, what happened on October 6th, October 7th, we failed, the military failed, the government failed, its policies failed, but Sinwar and Hamas were responsible. They were the aggressors. Correct. Okay, so so there, there's, there's a, a dual aspect to this. But let's consider something even more important in terms of background that Sinwar learned very well from the Shalit deal. If you take hostages, you'll get something in return for correct. it. Correct, correct. And I'm not suggesting that Israel take what would be the correct rational policy, because the rational policy isn't the moral policy. And the rational policy is to say, you've taken hostages, kill them. We don't care. They're of no value to us. Now, we can't do that, and I'm not advocating. No. Our moral position raises the value of hostages to the hostage takers. Correct. And paradoxically, makes it more likely that they'll take hostages in the future. Yeah, that that's that that's part of their strategy. Absolutely, right. hundred okay. percent. That we that we are. How can I say this? Morally bound to feed into. Correct. Okay. So so I think these are all considerations that have to go into the mix. Um, do you make a deal? Yes. Do you give them some time because that's what they want? If that's what they want? Yes. But how far, how many, how much do you let them off the hook? Right. Is an entirely different question. And that, that slide from one to the other is not being very well sort of broken down in public. Uh, the hostage families and, and, and their organizations I think totally legitimate there. It is absolutely uh, correct and legitimate for them to say the life 
of my loved one is more important to me than anything in the world. Yes. Totally legitimate. The government is responsible for the state and its people. Yeah. And the hostages there for the government need to be an important part of the decision-making, an important priority in, in the decision-making, but not the only priority in the decision-making. Agree. Agree. And, and that, that's part of, I think, the tension that's going on over the whole issue as well. Right. And sadly, decision-making, of course, because gov the government is, is uh, run by politicians, necessarily some of the calculation at least is political yes okay it has to be by definition if, if, if you could have a politician that was above it but i guess by definition they're that's... called dictators <laughs> okay elliot on that note we're going to take a break and come back and speak about another dictatorial regime but hold on we're going to come right back the restoration of jewish sovereignty in the land of israel was an earth-shattering event for Christians, it was a confirmation that God always keeps his covenantal promises. Today, we are blessed to see God's fingerprints in the modern miracle of the land of Israel playing out in our lives among the people and in the state of Israel. This year, on the occasion of Israel's 75th anniversary, the Genesis 123 Foundation has been privileged to bring together 75 Christian leaders from around the world to lend their unique voices, sharing their personal faith experiences relating to Israel, and their in-depth insight into Israel's history and spiritual significance, creating an historical, one-of-a-kind, high-end coffee table book, Israel the Miracle. Israel the Miracle's stunning imagery will fill your home with the hope of fulfilled promises and conversations about Israel. It's a perfect gift to anyone for any occasion, and most of all, to yourself. You'll also be a blessing to Israel knowing that the proceeds will go to bless Israelis of all backgrounds. Be a part of Israel the Miracle and bring the land, the people, and the state of Israel into your heart and into your home. Visit IsraelTheMiracle.com to get your limited edition copy today. Okay, um, that was a very good line, Elliot. Always, always, you're always on. Um, you. Before we talk about the dictatorial regime, uh, again, with whose anniversary they are, forcing right. people to celebrate in Iran today as we speak. Um, we have your neighbors immediately to the north, our neighbors immediately to your, to your north, Hezbollah, uh, with with much, much more serious threat. Uh, if the numbers are right, I'd love to hear what your projection is. Before October 7th, the estimate was 150,000 missiles, many of them precision long range that can hit pretty much everywhere in Israel. I'm wondering if we have recalculated our calculations based on what we didn't know about what Hamas had uh, in terms of its infrastructure. But but also, again, everywhere I go, I'm, no, I'm not the expert. I just am the citizen who goes around and talks to people and gives them warm jackets so they feel good. Um, but everyone's saying, look, you've had us out of our homes, away from our families for two months, three months, now it's four months, although many of them are going back or have gone back. Um, everyone's saying we need to go in and take care of business with Hezbollah. This is an unacceptable situation with the threat, unacceptable evacuating nearly 100,000 people from their homes. Uh, what what do you see that's going on there? And what are your what are your projections? I, I think that it is highly likely that we will go in after them before all of this is over. Okay. 
um, the, the, the evacuation of the border was the right move at the time under the circumstances. Okay. And in lar largely because of the unknowns. I mean, suddenly Israel was, was shocked by the attack on the 7th. And incidentally, it was the it was an attack that we anticipated happening in the north, not out of Gaza. Right. So, the sense that, oh my goodness, it happened there, it could happen tomorrow here as well, and it could even be coordinated. Let's get everybody out of the way. Let's send the reservists up up there in large numbers. Let's go on on full alert. Uh, and I. I believe that that did prevent a Hezbollah attack by sending the troops and being and by pulling the, right. the, the population out. Here, here I think an, an important point that needs to be made. There's a difference between the measure of success of a terrorist organization and of a classical military organization. Okay, if we look at what Hamas did on the seventh, and or let, let's look at the events of the 7th and 8th of October. In purely military terms, what Hamas did was an absolute failure on its part. Okay, I, I, I think I understand, but why? Okay, they sent somewhere between two and 3,000 troops into Israel. They conquered a part of the Negev, small part, but a part of the Negev, including kibbutzim and moshavim and towns and, and that sort of thing. And within 24 hours, they were wiped out. Okay. That is a military disaster, not just okay. a failure, disaster. Okay. From a terrorist perspective, it was an absolute success. Okay. So because their objective was not to take territory, the objective was not to hold territory. The objective was to kill as many innocent people as they could, and that they succeeded in doing. Yeah. Okay. Which means that from our point of view from a military perspective, we have to look at defense differently than we would as if we were facing a purely classical military threat. Up north, that's exactly what we did. We said, okay, we're pulling the population out of here. We're going to send up a massive reserve force. And if Hezbollah wants to break their necks against it, that's their business. Okay. And I think that Hassan Nasrallah took one look at that situation and said, you know what, whatever I was thinking yesterday, I'm changing it today. I'm not in on this. Okay. Okay, so that's that's number one. However, there's an important however here. He has to show that he's part of the game. In other words, he can't just get up and walk away, especially since Hamas is accusing him of leaving them out to dry. I see. So He's got to keep the border hot, and he is. They've done enormous destruction along the border, much more than is being reported. Okay, all right. Uh, physical destruction, buildings, homes, uh, infrastructure, huge destruction. And we've been responding. We've been responding, I would say, vigorously uh, in South Lebanon against targets in Syria. Uh, here we have to throw Iran and its militias into the mix as well. And we've been doing a lot of damage to them, but it's all been on what I call a symbolic level. In other words, we are not, we haven't degraded, we've killed 
a couple of hundred of their operators of the of the terrorists, a couple of hundred in an organization of forty thousand or fifty thousand. Right, is insignificant. They're not getting the message clearly, but they are only escalating quantitatively and not qualitatively. In other words, on days and and I'm constantly being asked the question, well, you know, Hezbollah fired forty rockets and missiles yesterday. Uh, isn't this an escalation? And the answer is no, not really, because they're hitting the same targets over and over again. In other words, the same towns. They're doing the damage that they're doing. But if they really want to escalate, they would fire 50 or 100 rockets into Haifa. And then they have war on their hands that day. Correct. They're not doing that. Are we waiting for that to happen to respond and then go in? Or, or is someone going to wake up and one day and say, Today's our D-Day, and and we're taking care of business in Lebanon. So I think there are two things that we're waiting for. And and let me start by saying, if we have to, we can go in today. Okay. In other words, if Hezbollah decides to escalate intentionally or inadvertently, okay. in other words, they fire into an area that they, they think is unpopulated, and there are people there, and they kill, pick your horror number. Right. Uh, okay. Then we're going to go in after them. Uh, or if they do it intentionally, like I said, you know, 50, 50 or 100 rockets into Haifa, they'll have their war. We're capable of going in and doing that. We would prefer not to. There are two factors that are in play right now that need to be, one will resolve itself and the other one needs to be resolved. The one that will resolve itself is the weather. Uh, you know, we just came came off three solid weeks of rain. Yes. More coming next week. We're in the rainy season. Yeah. And the rainy season means poor weather for air support, poor weather for artillery support for observation. Uh, in other words, reducing some of the great advantages that we have over them and anything that does that, that equalizes, if you have a superior force, equalizes sure. is not good for you. Okay. Mud is not good for armored vehicles. And the ground out here right now, and I'm up north, and from here northward is muddy. Okay. And after the first tank or two, it's even muddier. It becomes yes. a quagmire. So if we can avoid that, that would be great. That means two months from now. Okay. The other thing is we have to get finished with the major operations in Gaza. Not so much because of the ground forces, but because of the support forces. Sure. We need to move artillery northward. We need to redirect air support northward. Uh, right now, our, the Air Force, and this is not a military secret, um, among the many errors made by the Israeli government and military over the recent years, was to close two of our four Apache attack helicopter squadrons. Oh, didn't know that. Okay. Uh, because who needs attack helicopters? We have, you know, we, they're deterred, and we have <laughs> electronics, and uh, et cetera. Um, and now they're operating really at the end of, of, of their tent in Gaza. Got it. So if we, if we now have a war with Hezbollah simultaneously, we don't have the, the air support necessary. Okay. Uh, likewise, artillery, not only guns, but ammunition. We're, we've fired a huge amount, over 100,000 rounds of artillery ammunition into Gaza. The shells that we're firing today, we did not have on October 7th. We've gotten them 
primarily from the United States. America, as you know, is not exactly, um, how can I put this, solidly holding the line. They're holding the line to support us, but not solidly. Especially this past week. Especially this past week. But but let's be clear, it, it, it includes American partisan politics on both sides. Indeed. Um, in both houses of Congress and basically playing political football with aid to Israel during the war. And I, I have to say that because I think that that's a, a, a critical aspect of understanding everything that's going on around us. Right. Uh, so what that means from our point of view is we would prefer not to be fighting a two-front war when we're already stretched to our limits, at least in some aspects of combat and combat support and one. So those are the two facts. Okay. Uh, thank you for that. W- one more point about Hezbollah. Um, again, the, the number 150,000 is a number that I've known and internalized for some time. I, I, I don't know. I don't know that anyone would have imagined that Hamas would have had not not just the, the, the rockets, but the ability to keep firing them even as recent as yesterday or the day before, right. which which always astounds me. Uh uh, I can explain that too if you want. Okay, go ahead. Hamas dug untold numbers of rocket launchers into the ground loaded with rockets. And they are connected by wire or by cell phone to command centers, and they can fire them remotely. What they can't do is reload them. I see. Okay, so it's single use rocket right. launchers. Right. So they're there, they're in place. Uh, Hezbollah has done something like that, but it doesn't need to. Why? Because Hezbollah has an entire country to operate in. Uh, I see. Okay. Okay. Um, but to your to 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 the implied question, my my estimate is they have about three hundred and fifty thousand rockets. Ouch! That's a little bit more than one hundred and fifty. Right. Uh, but but that's my my estimate. It's an extrapolation. But you know what? Even if we split the difference and call it a quarter of a million. It's a lot. It is a lot, and they're not going to. They can't launch them all at the same time, but they can launch a lot more of them. And if the Iron Dome yeah. is the um, uh, countermeasure of choice, that's only that's only ninety percent effective. We're it's still looking at a big mess. First of all, no, it's bigger than than you imply. Okay. Because uh, the Iron Dome is ninety percent effective at what it engages. The short range things. No. Short or long, long range. Talk, talk quantity here, not quality. Oh, I see. Okay. The Iron Dome can't engage 150 rockets simultaneously. Got it. It doesn't have enough interceptors. So let's say it, it can, I don't know the exact numbers, but for our purpose, let's say it, it can safely engage 20, 30, 40 and take out 90% of them. Mm-hmm. What about the other 100? Got it. And if they launch simultaneously in, at two or three different targets, for our purposes, and, and I say this with the greatest respect for Iron Dome as a technology, and, and we, we you, you know me long enough to know that I am not a high-tech guy. I'm an absolutely devout low-tech guy. Right. Uh, if I say technology is amazing, then it's really something to it. Iron Dome technology is amazing. Yes. Uh, and the people operating it, the the men and women who who operate the system, are incredibly competent. But it has its limits. It simply sure. doesn't have enough pieces to 
to take out what, what it's going to need to do. It will be essentially ineffective in the war against Hezbollah. And we don't have a, a a quantity of iron domes that will compensate for the quantity. No. Okay. No. As a matter of fact, that 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 was part of the the cleverness, if you will, I don't want to say genius, but the cleverness of both the Hamas uh methodology and the uh and the Hezbollah, both of which came from Iran as far as as far as I can tell, uh, which is you don't try to beat Israel technologically, you go under it. Yeah. Okay. Right. We we had the super sophisticated four billion shekel impenetrable electronic fence they knocked down with tractors. Right. Right. Ridiculous. As remarkable and miraculous as Israel is, and its very existence a testimony to God's faithfulness. In many ways, Israel's like most other countries, just as there are parents anywhere who have stronger and weaker parenting abilities. And adults become a product of situations in their lives that they cannot control, making their ability to raise and care for their own children even harder. That's true in Israel as well. The Genesis 1-2-3 Foundation is committed and takes the mandate seriously to care for the least of these, our brothers, our children. We're committed to bless and strengthen orphans and at-risk youth, to invest in them, to empower them, so that their future will be brighter than their past or their present. But Israel is unique in that there are always threats of war and terror, which know no bounds. For children who come from homes that are not safe, sometimes the very scary reality of living in a community that's not safe is too much to bear. We are committed to turning orphans and at-risk youth into children of promise. We fund a variety of programs to help those most in need as widely as we can. We invite and encourage you to join us today so that we can ensure their brighter tomorrow. Please visit genesis123.co to find out more and to send your love and most generous donation today. As long as you mentioned Iran and we are speaking on the anniversary of their Islamic revolution, um, I don't know if you saw, by the way, speaking of cooking from the earlier conversation, I did a uh, bit of a spoof cooking video that Iranians are now apparently um, for a, a number of years mocking the death of Qasem Soleimani four years ago by referring to him as a cutlet, a fried meat patty. Uh, and so I I did a cooking video here in my home, perhaps the first kosher cutlet uh, cooking video ever to stand in solidarity with the Iranians. Forget the solidarity piece. That's important. Um, militarily, uh, as much as there's a threat in Iran, and uh, excuse me, in uh, Lebanon from Hezbollah, and we've talked about this in different experience, different conversations with Iran, there are public reports that they are still inching closer to being able to at least have the nuclear material, whether they can deliver it or not, is a separate issue. Uh, but but ultimately, that's the head of the snake. Ultimately, that. If, if we take out Hamas, if we take out Hezbollah, I don't know if we're going to have time to talk today about the Houthis uh, in, in Yemen. Um, but if we take and, them and all the out... In, and the militias in Iraq and, and Syria. Okay. So so without addressing the core of the problem, which unfortunately too many world leaders seem to think 
is not only not necessarily a problem, but but that can be uh, uh, appeased by sending them money. Um, right. We're, we're going to still have the same problem. It's like playing whack-a-mole. What what needs to be done with Iran? It needs to be stopped physically. And how they're not getting they're not getting the message. And and I, I'm glad you mentioned the money thing because that was part of the the flaw in the thinking about Hamas as well. Ah, um, right, right. Okay. You have to realize that that most of the Western world believes the the same sort of fundamental paradigm, whether they come from for lack of a better term, economically, I'll call the right or the left. Both Karl Marx and Adam Smith, who were pretty much, I would say, diametrically opposed, uh, if, if you place their their way of thinking economically, come from the ba same basic idea that economics is what drives politics, behavior. Uh, it, it's sort of the, the core, the root the fundamental point of movement. And neither of them took into account all the other things that drive people, like religion, like ideology, uh, that, like identity, that have nothing to do with economics. And we fell into the trap, and the world falls into the trap. If you just give them some money, everything will be fine. Uh, because all they want is, is money, or, or if, if you want to be cynical, all they want is, you know, the guys in Qatar, the, the Hamas guys in Qatar, all they want are their seven-star hotels. Yeah. And, you know, but it's not just that. Osama bin Laden was was a multi-multi-millionaire, and he lived in a cave. So there's more to it than that, and that's what's being missed in all of this. I mean, if if I'm I'm a, a fanatical, radical Islamist of, a, of the Khomeini variety, and you offer me a billion dollars, I'll take it. <laughs> you'll, you'll, right. Okay. But that's not even, changing. And I might even say thank you and ask you to sit down and have a cup of coffee with me. Yeah. But that doesn't change anything. So, so that we've, that we've now enabled Iran with billions of dollars going back to Obama and more, and, yeah. and most recently this past summer, um, and made it clear that you can be a terrorist and we'll, we're going to fund you and appease you. And even if we wink and say it's humanitarian, and even if we believe that it's humanitarian, right. which right. is foolish, uh, it Iran needs to be dealt with. And I, I've learned to say not Iran, the Iranian regime, because probably by and large, after 45 years, most Iranians are really fed up and want to have their country back to the extent that anyone convinced. remembers what that was like. I'm not convinced. You're not convinced. Okay, why? I have a a principle that says that a regime doesn't last for a long period of time, and here we're talking about a long period of time, without at least the tacit support of its population. Okay. Now, if the regime gets overthrown, you're going to find lots of people who say that they opposed it, <laughs> uh, as we're seeing now in Gaza. But I'll give you a, a, an interesting and apt analogy. Uh, when U.S. forces entered Germany in 1945, they were astounded to find that there were no Nazis among the population. Mm -hmm. And as um, Atkinson, the, the historian who, who 
book I got that out of as he wrote. And you could believe it as long as you ignored that that faded rectangle on the wall that the <laughs> had been hanging up until a week ago. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, okay, so my, a, regime, my... a regime like the Iranian regime doesn't last. All this talk about regime change and regime nonsense. The demonstrations that they dealt with were not that large. It was not a surge uprising. And by the way, we know what a surge uprising looks like. Go back to the Soviet Union. Go back to Eastern Europe. Uh, go back to, to to some of the uprisings in, in the Arab world during the, the so-called Arab Spring that we now yeah. call the Islamic yeah. Winter. Okay? Yeah. Those, you know what? Look at Syria, even though it failed, but look at the scale of uprising. And nothing that happened in Iran comes close to that. And it can it can be serious demonstrations. Here again, uh, I'm going to use Lahavdil one more time. Um, I remember the Vietnam era. Okay. And if you looked at, I'm talking about the late Vietnam era with the massive demonstrations in the United States against the war, and they were massive, and they were they were ugly, and they were violent, and there were college students shot on campuses, and there were buildings burning. Was the regime threatened at any point? No, no. It's got to be more than that. that so what's the so what's the more, Elliot? Uh, uh, and, and, and I mean, to me, I'm just simple, Jonathan, sitting here in in Judea. Uh, never had the privilege to serve in any army. I don't know from military stuff, but it seems to me that the only way to take it on to the Iranians is by going in massively and blowing up all their stuff. Ex external military. And can we do that on our own? Do we require the assistance, much less the arms from, from the U.S. and or the Saudis or the Emiratis or anyone else? Or or is this just a, 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 a foolish conversation because no one can actually stop? No, first of all, they can be stopped. Can Israel do it alone? Not as well as it could with a great deal of support. Okay. In other words, an Israeli operation, if it's limited just to Israeli capability, and let's remember, we're not just talking about Air Force, yeah, uh, or, or not not just um, manned aircraft. There's missile capability. There's submarine missile capability. Uh, the special forces capability. There's a lot that can go into it, and 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 certainly at cost. Uh, a lot of damage can be done. Is it the same as what the United States could do? Absolutely not. I, I gave a briefing at a U.S. Air Force base a number of years ago um, on this subject. And I said, look, let, let's be serious. With all due respect to the Israeli Air Force, and I have a lot of respect for the Air Force, nobody like but the United States can launch what I would call a leisurely methodical air campaign against Iran, which is you have, you know, day one, you take out this, and day two, you take out this, and day three, you take out this. And after you've hit all the targets, you go home, you, you drink a cup of coffee, you wait for all the air recon photos to come back, and go back and do it again until until it's done. Okay. And if you have to do it for two weeks, or three weeks, or five weeks, or six weeks, you have the capability to do that. We don't. I mean, the U.S. went after the militias last week. They, they hit 85 targets in 30 minutes. The Houthis in Yemen. 
No, the militia. Oh, oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. In Syria and Iraq. Okay. Uh, it was a brilliant display of firepower. It was pretty stupid strategy, but that's a different story because basically hit empty bases. Here's the hint. 85 targets in 30 minutes, 14 killed. Oh, dear. Wow. That's, that's not successful. Okay. No, it, it wasn't intended to be successful. Okay. But in terms of what, what we're talking about. But it included um, bombers that came from Texas. It's a okay, long in other words, the, long, the long reach of the U.S. and 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 really, this is what this is what I mean. America's ability to launch from all over the world, carrier-based, land-based missiles, cruise missiles, whatever, is far beyond Israel's capability. And at the same time, not only launching it, but launching it from places that are absolutely unreachable by the Iranians. Okay, so. What America can do is orders of magnitude different, but Israel does have the capability to do an enormous amount of damage if we decide to do it. So, but when you talk about it, maybe this will wrap up the conversation, which we could keep going for a week, uh, and it's always enjoyable too. Amer the operative words are America can do. We're nine months from an election. Um, right. We're nine months from an election with the president. Actually, this is the topic of last week's uh episode where we talked about the impact of the war on Hamas, which in, this, in our case is bigger because of the U.S. election, where at least this week we're seeing very clear signs of the of the administration and the president himself um, pivoting toward the uh, Ilhanist uh, wing of, her, of of his party. Michigan, uh, let's let's call, call it correct. Correct. He doesn't want to lose Michigan and he doesn't want other other people to stay home in in other states where where just by staying home could flip the 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 electoral count and, and we understand that but is there any realistic probability that the president that the biden administration will launch a war this year to take out that threat in in iran uh paradoxically they could get dragged into it huh and here i we mentioned the 85 targets um America and and the Houthis, for that matter, the strikes against the Houthis, America is doing the precisely wrong strategy for what it wants to get done in this part of the world. You don't launch attacks against eighty five targets and say, "I don't want an escalation." Ah, yes, that 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 that's ridiculous. And if anything can drag America into a war, it's that kind of dual message. I see. Oh, oh, that's an optimistic way of looking at it, I guess. <laughs> really? Okay. In other words, because the, the other side looks and says, oh, you don't want an escalation? Fine. We'll double down. We'll push it. We'll push you. That's right. Yeah, interesting. Where, what America should be saying is, we just hit 85 targets. Did you enjoy that? Because we'll we'll hit 850 targets next time. That's funny you say that. I, I have no, very little respect for Jimmy Carter. I had the opportunity as a student at Emory of hearing President Carter, what, in my, what my good friend then referred to as his presidency in exile, uh, speaking, speaking about a, an attack on a Libyan site which was labeled as something that it wasn't a military site right. making a very clear uh, indication to 
the Libyans at the time to Muammar Gaddafi that if you keep playing games, we know where all of your stuff is. Um, that would be the appropriate message, not right. not we're we're really just flexing our muscle and we really have no desire to do anything further. That's right. Interesting. Um, Elliot, we could go on. I always like to leave my my guests with the last word about anything that we've said or anything that we didn't say. No, I think, as you say, we, we, we could go on, I think, indefinitely. Uh, I think we've, we've covered this reasonably well. Uh, the, I think the last word has to, should go back to, to um, the beginnings of our, the last part of our conversation and keep in mind that the, the long reach and shadow of Khomeini uh, who was basically channeling Said Qutb of the of the Muslim Brotherhood is still out there. Yeah, and and his Islamic revolution, uh, his vicious anti-Semitism, is part and parcel of all those who are being supported by Iran in this, and that includes Hezbollah, the Houthis, Hamas, Islamic Jihad, the militias, Al Qaeda, uh, and others. They all draw back uh, to brotherhood ideology, yes. but to to Khomeini now in particular, who's who's the the sort of his his image is the driving force behind a lot of what we're seeing today. Well said. All right. Well, Elliot, thank you so much as always. Well, to be continued. I I I suppose that since the war is not ending in the next week or month or or in the foreseeable future, we will have opportunities to continue to dissect this and talk about what may come um, in the weeks and months to come for good and for bad. Yep. Elliot Chodoff, always a pleasure. Uh, and to everyone who's listened, if you haven't followed Elliot and me and other conversations, uh, go back and listen. And if you want to know where, then please be in touch. Uh, but what we always like to do now is, is end with the, with the urge. You shouldn't, if you found this of interest, you need to share and, uh, and comment on this. And I hope you will. But we are giving you an incentive, as we've done for the last two and a half years. Um, we call it From Jonathan's Bookshelf. And all we ask is that you do is follow and like Inspiration from Zion on all our social media and comment and share. And every month, for anyone who's commented or shared the, the link uh, to this program, we pick one person at random to receive a special book. And since August, but certainly September, when the book actually came off the printer here in Israel, we are giving away a, a copy of The Magnificent. And I don't say that because we published it. I say because of everyone who's received it. And we're actually about to go into our second printing as well here in Israel of Israel the Miracle. It's a stunning book. Go to israelthemiracle.com to see why you want it. And maybe even though I'm offering you an opportunity to get one free, you might want to get one yourself. We're always grateful that this podcast is sponsored by the uh, Willow Run Greenhouse in Culpeper, Virginia. And if you're ever in the area, pop in to say, uh, thank you for helping make conversations like this possible. And special thanks to the Coin family as well for their meaningful sponsorship. Inspiration from Zion and all the Genesis 123 Foundation programs are made possible by donations. So please consider joining us to help continue the dialogue and build bridges. And this episode, we have, these episodes have been coming fast and furious. And honestly, I haven't spent a lot of time asking people to be sponsors or not. So I get the discretion of who in certain episodes are, are, we're, we're dedicating this in honor of. And I want to say we're talking about uh, 300, 400,000 reservists plus the, uh, plus the uh, 
Sadir, how do we say Sadir Elliot? The regular army. The regular army um, who have been who have been working tirelessly and and sacrificing, sadly. So in in their honor and and with prayers that they continue to succeed, with absolute minimal casualties. Um, I'm dedicating this to the IDF. If you'd like to sponsor a future episode in honor or memory of a loved one or a special occasion or your favorite military, please be in touch at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your comments always as part of a dialogue and invite you to send questions as well, specifically questions about traditional Judaism where our Ask the Rabbi programs. Please share this with others who will also find it of interest and continue to join us right here as we bring you more meaningful conversations about unique topics relating to Israel that you won't hear anywhere else. Wherever you are in the world, I pray that you and your loved ones are safe and healthy, and I send my blessings from right here in the Judean mountains. God bless you.